The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except the Holy Spirit. Now there are vanities, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is the one is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say... Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable gifts do not require. But God has so composed the body, 
giving greater honor to the part that lacks it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, family. It's really good to see you this morning. Our series theme as we continue exploring 1 Corinthians is gospel-formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. And what we're going to see this week is we become who we are, a united family in a fractured city when, here it is, when believing the Spirit gives each of us gifts for the common good, I actually live like I need the church and the church needs me. Now, we're still in a section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, that deals specifically with their worship gatherings. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, This morning, chapter 12, if you want to consider that Paul's introductory talk to spiritual gifts. So it's an introductory talk. Next week in chapter 13, Paul's going to pivot a little bit, still talking about gifts, but he's basically going to make this claim. He's going to say, if you don't practice the gifts that God has given you from a heart posture of love, you're better off not practicing your gifts at all. You will do more damage when it is loveless. Just just don't even practice them. Love or nothing. Okay, that'll be chapter 13. Chapter 14 is going to deal, so two weeks from now, is going to deal with the healthy expression of the gifts that we will see today. Now, I know many of you, depending upon your background, I'm going to use two words here that probably you'll only know if it's your background, and I'm not going to refer to them again, okay? So they don't matter. But if you come from a cessationist background, and I don't mean you're from the South and you seated in the Civil War, that's not what I mean then your ears are already perked because you want to know what I'm going to say about the expression of these gifts and if they're for today. Same thing for those of you from what we might call a continuationist background or maybe more charismatic. You care deeply about what we're going to say from the text and whether or not these gifts are for today and how they should be expressed. I may tip my hand a few times this morning. I'm going to try not to, but that piece of the conversation will really come a little bit next week, but more so in chapter 14. So you're going to have to hang on, okay? You have to hang on. We know that Paul transitioned from our focus last week. You remember our focus last week that everybody just absolutely enjoyed, right? We talked about not obscuring or overemphasizing gender differences in all of life, but especially in our worship gatherings as a church family. 
We know that Paul pivoted because look at the way this chapter begins. Chapter 12, verse 1. He begins this way. Now, right? Now, comma, now concerning. So we know he's, he's shifting topics. Now, concerning, and now he, he tips us off as to the topic. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. Now, the word gift is supplied there in the text so that we can understand it. They, uh, they did that based on the context of the rest of the chapter. Like, it's clear that he's talking... Uh, Paul says spiritual, and it's clear that he's talking about gifts, so the editors supplied that. But you could read it as uh, now concerning spiritual gifts or spiritual things or uh, spiritual people. So the topic is what it means to be spiritual and spirituality. That's where Paul's going. Now remember, much of this letter is a Q&A. The church in Corinth had questions for Paul, so they wrote letters and they sent a messenger. We have a few of the questions here in the letter, but for the most part, we have Paul's answers and we don't have their questions. That's kind of true here again, so it makes it a little bit challenging. We have the answers and not really the question, but we do have some solid clues, right? Here's a clue in chapter 14, verse 12. We'll be here in a couple weeks, but here's a clue as to what's going on. Paul writes to them and he says, you guys are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. So they were eager for a display of the Spirit's presence, like an evidence that he's there, or a sign. Sometimes you hear these gifts referred to as sign gifts. They wanted to see that the Spirit was present. They were eager for this. And that's a good thing. We should be eager for this as well. But we also know there was a problem back one chapter, chapter, or back, back in our chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. Here's the problem. Paul says, I don't want you guys to be uninformed, meaning they were uninformed. They were uninformed as it related to the to spiritual gifts and the healthy expression of these gifts. And we know from all of chapters 12, 13, and 14 that for them, spirituality had become a competition. It had become a competition. It had become about comparison or ranking each other. And we know for this particular church, their attention was solidly fixed on tongues. Like if you were a really spiritual person, you were speaking in tongues. And the more you spoke in tongues, the more spiritual you were. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you might not even be a Christian. And your spirituality was really, really suspect. So it had become a competition, a comparison, and Paul writes, guys, these gifts are given to you not for comparison and not for competition, but for the common good. Uh, that statement really serves as the heart of this portion of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 7. He, here's exactly how Paul writes it down. He says, to each, so each member of the family is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common Good. So here's our approach for today. First, we'll define spiritual or spirituality because that's a word used a lot in our culture and there may be some confusion about that for us. So Paul defines it for us and, and, and we'll, we'll explore that. So we'll define it. And then we kind of have a two-part question that we'll deal with right in the center of the chapter. What are spiritual gifts and why are they given to us, right? What are they and why do we have them? And then really the bulk of what Paul really cares about in this chapter is what we could call a personal resolution. It was his own, and he wanted it to be adopted by the church in Corinth, and that's this. I need the church, and the church needs me. Okay, so again, the big idea for this morning, as a church family, we will become who we are, who God intends for us to be, who he says we are, only when believing the Spirit gives each of us gifts for the common good. We personally resolve to live like the church needs me and I need the church. 
So let's begin by defining spirituality. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean? Well, we have an immediate clue in our chapter here because Paul uses the word spiritual and we know from usage in the New Testament. Here's a very simple explanation. Here's what it means to be spiritual. It simply means in the text, from the Spirit or derived from the Spirit. So what does that tell us? Like that, that is the definition of what it means to be spiritual, from the Spirit or derived from the Spirit. So what does that tell us? It tells us that every human being that has ever walked the face of this earth is a spiritual person. Now, we love to talk about this in our culture. We have all kinds of categories, the nuns and the duns and the not affiliated, or I'm spiritual, and not, or not, I'm spiritual but not religious, or some would say, I'm, just, I'm not spiritual at, all, spiritual at all, but I'm open. Guys, the gospel tells us that everyone is spiritual. Now, here's baseline, right? If we know, uh, t- if, if spiritual means from the spirit, where do, we, where do we have our life from? Where do we have our life from? Oh. So we're going to ditch the sermon and go back to Genesis 1 today. <laughs> Where's our life come from? The spirit. So whether or not you have ever stepped foot into a religious building, ever, whether or not you've ever practiced any, anything remotely religious, you're spiritual. You have a spirit given to you, endowed to you from the creator through the spirit that makes you spiritual. You are a spiritual being. We're spiritual. So everyone's spiritual. I know we're not all religious. That's okay. That's not what Paul's saying. But the gospel clearly tells us we're all spiritual. The problem is, Our spirituality, apart from Jesus, the Bible says, is idolatry, right? Spirituality expressed or experienced apart from Jesus is idolatry. The word idolatry just means a substitute for Jesus. It's something that we have placed in his rightful position, right? It's idolatry. That's what Paul says. Check out verse 2. He's got a word for you. He's going to say, we were all pagans at one time, right? When we were pagans... So when we were spiritual, but practicing our spirituality apart from Jesus, that's what a pagan is. When we were pagans, when we were pagans, we were led astray to mute idols. I love Paul's little comma here. However you were led, right? You were, we were all led to mute idols in our express spirituality apart from Jesus. And we know from the Bible that we always become what we worship, we always grow up into the image that we're worshiping, right? So Paul says these are mute idols, and we become like what we worship in that our, our mouths will never confess allegiance to Jesus. We're mute in regards to rightful worship. We have nothing to say about Jesus in regards to our affection for him or our allegiance to him because we don't have affection for him. We don't have any loyalty to Jesus. That is... Until the Spirit gives us the first gift of many that he will give us. And what is that gift? He gives us faith to see and believe Jesus. So that our spirituality can be practiced the way that uh, Jesus created us to, to know and experience our spirituality. And so the Spirit gives us faith to see and believe Jesus. He gives us affection for him. He gives us allegiance to him. And he gives us a voice That voice is exactly what Paul's talking about in verse 3. He says, therefore, family, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's way of saying that your affection for Jesus is a gift. 
It didn't originate within you. It was given to you from the Spirit. My allegiance to Jesus is a gift. It didn't originate within me. It was given to me as a gift from the Spirit. So apart from the Holy Spirit's gift, I would never see Jesus for who he is. And I would never say that Jesus is who he is, that he deserves my affection and deserves my allegiance. So Paul's really helped us define spirituality or what it means to be spiritual here. Here's my working definition from what we just learned from Paul. Spirituality, or to be spiritual, is spirit-imparted allegiance to Jesus and affection for Jesus. That's what it means to be spiritual with a gospel definition. It is spirit-imparted. It's given to me. It's an allegiance that's given to me and an affection that's given to me to and for Jesus. Now, what does that help us understand? The very thing they were doing in Corinth, ranking each other according to spiritual expression, is so anti-gospel. Why? Because our spirituality is a gift to us. How, how often have you heard, man, Ron Koya, he is so spiritual. David Sutherland, so spiritual, right? Misty Dougherty, such a spiritual woman, right? We say that about people, or in our quieter moments, maybe we think of ourselves that way, or more honestly, we're like, I'm just not very spiritual, We're ranking ourselves against each other. No ranking. It's a gift received. So the bottom line is we are all spiritual. There's this baseline of spirituality that we have all been given through the Spirit. So we're all spiritual and we're all a mess. I mean, that's what the gospel tells us over and over again. You are spiritual, it's a gift to you, and you're a mess. We're all spiritual and we're all a mess. And so the Spirit is the first gift that we receive. We receive the Spirit at adoption when we repent and believe of our rebellion. The Father gives us the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life, and that life is is expressed as allegiance to Jesus and affection for Jesus. And once that gift is given, it begins a lifetime of receiving gifts from the Spirit. That's what Paul says in verse 4. He says, now there are varieties of gifts right? There are different gifts, and there are lots of those different gifts, an inexhaustible supply from the Spirit. Which brings us to our next question for the text, our next two questions. What are spiritual gifts, and why are they given to us? I love this quote from Sam Storms, and he's going to help us answer our question this morning. Sorry, that's a small font, but here we go. There's a crucial principle that we need to understand from the outset, Listen, this is so important. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They are not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us, spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically as if a God out there has sent something to us down here. Now listen, his final sentence is so important. Spiritual gifts are God present in with and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, and human love. You see what he's saying here? These gifts are not something that God just, they're not like the Christmas presents that you gave to your kids and then sent them to their rooms and said, hey, go enjoy, go have fun with these gifts. That's not what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is God himself through the Spirit 
present within us, working powerfully through us, through our words, through our minds, through our wills for his fame and for the good of other people. So Sam helps us answer that question, and it's a great answer, but I just want to show you it's, it's not original, it's not unique to Sam, and it is anchored thoroughly here in the text. Look at from verses 4 to 6. Three times we see the word varieties as it relates to gifts here, right? There are, a, there, there are varieties of gifts, so there, and, and the word gifts itself is plural. There are many gifts, and there are many kinds of gifts, uh, two other words that Paul uses as he's talking here. There, so he says gifts, but then he also calls some of them service, right? There, there are varieties of service, serving. And there are varieties of, he says, activities, or the word could be working. Like there's a, there's a variety of activities. So again, diverse gifts, all from the same God. And each of these gifts are given through the Spirit, from Jesus, and from the Father, Now, what we see in the text here is this, God empowers each of these gifts, each of these gifts, each of these services, each of these working in every member of his family. Well, how does he do that? Look at verse six. The father empowers these gifts in us through the manifestation of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? Again, exactly what Sam said. Spiritual gifts are God present in with and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, and human love. That word manifestation is an evidence that something is present. It's a sign that something exists, right? So through the manifestation of the Spirit, he's saying uh, these gifts are empowered through the presence of the Spirit within us. He's working through us. Well, then the next question our minds bring to the text is when do those gifts, like, When does that happen, right? Um, How exactly does that work? Well, look at verse 11 with me. And Paul says, all of these gifts, all of these services, all of these workings, they are empowered by one and the same spirit, look at this, who apportions to each person individually as he wills. All right, so our first question, when is a spiritual gift, I don't even really want to use this word, but We could say activated or expressed. Maybe that's a better word. When is a spiritual gift expressed? When? What does the text tell us? When? On demand? Uh Uh-uh. For TV? Definitely not. Uh, For the right uh, donation? And I'll send you some oil and a rag and I'm going to express this. No, like none of these things. When is a gift expressed? As the Spirit wills. When He wants it to be expressed. When there is a need and the Spirit wills for that gift to be worked through you for the good of another person, that answers the when question. That is when a gift is expressed. And how? It's always his empowering presence. It's not your personality. It's not your natural-born gift sense, skill set, right? It's none of these things that are intrinsic to you. It's the presence of the Spirit through you when he wants it to be expressed for the good of another person, and he is the one that provides the power working through you. It's not about you or me. Now, we know from Scripture that some gifts are expressed in a moment and only for that moment, and then never again, right? So like a one-time occurrence of that gift, as the Holy Spirit wills. It's not as John Ransom wills or as you will. So some gifts are expressed once, in the lifetime of a person, and then not again. Some gifts are expressed over a season of time, right? Over a season of time. There were seasons where 
People were being healed through Paul's touch. That was not a lifetime gift for Paul. It didn't happen all the time, and it didn't happen on his demand. It happened when the Spirit wanted it to happen. So some occur once, some occur over a season of time, and then we know from Scripture some gifts seem to be expressed over the fullness of a lifetime. So from the moment you're adopted into the family and the Father gives you gifts through the Spirit, insofar as you're walking with the Spirit day in and day out, that gift is expressed across a lifetime. Now, Paul gives us a list here from verse 8 to verse 10 of spiritual gifts. All I want to say about this list is it is representative and not exhaustive. There are other places you can go in the New Testament to learn about gifts that are not listed here. Romans 12 would be a place you could go, and Ephesians 4, and there are others. I don't, we're not going to give an exhaustive talk on all the gifts. I am going to give you a basic definition for each of the gifts that we see here, though, okay? So here they are. Again, representative, not exhaustive. Here's the first one. Paul says, in utterance of wisdom. That would be a revelatory wise word. And when I say revelatory, I mean it's not naturally occurring to you. It's something that the Spirit imparts for you or to you for the good of another person. That's what I mean by revelatory, okay? A um, utterance of wisdom is a revelatory wise word from the Holy Spirit applied specifically to a person's life. We know from the Bible that the word wisdom generally means knowledge applied to life or to kind of uh, even distill it further down is how to live, right? Basically how to live. So uh, that would be a, an utterance or a word of wisdom. An utterance of knowledge would be a message deeply rooted in knowledge of God himself or of his word. Again, that the Spirit imparts to a person in a moment for the good of, a, of another person. Or it could be specific knowledge as it relates to a person or to a situation. I'm not going to do this, but I was reading in a book this week about a, a, a sermon that Charles Spurgeon was preaching one time, and he just like totally steps out of the pulpit, steps away from the notes, looks a dude in the eye, and he's like, yo, the gloves that you shoplifted yesterday need to go back to the store owner you, you, robbed, you, know, you robbed from. The dude goes white, just pale in the face, and he comes up and he talks to Charles Spurgeon later after the sermon and details everything that had happened. And so like that would be an example of word of knowledge maybe specifically re- relating to a very specific person at a very specific time, right? Uh, some people equate this gift, word of knowledge, with the gift of teaching. And that's how they would view it as more lifelong. Oh, that person has the gift of knowledge. He's a good teacher. She's a good teacher, okay? Then there are uh, the gift of faith. If you just flipped over to chapter 13, verse 2, we, like, here's the definition supplied for us from the text. Uh, chapter 13, verse 2 says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. So we're talking about a, a big faith. The person who has the gift of faith sees the mountain mover and not the mountain. Those of us with maybe what we would say more normative faith or not having this gift would be so easily preoccupied by the mountains in front of us. The people in our family with the gift of faith don't see the mountain. They see the mountain mover and the mountain mover always makes the mountain look like an anthill, right? The gift of faith. Then there's the gift of healing. doesn't need a lot of explanation. Paul specifically means a healing of physical 
bodies. Again, that gift generally was not a permanent gift through a person's lifetime, not operated on demand. If it is, I'm sorry, that's just not a real thing. It's always the Spirit's will and not our own. Um, So gift of healing, healing physical bodies. Then the working of miracles. That would be the actualization of God's power in mighty deeds. So uh, gifts of miracles would include healing, but it would be broader than that. Prophecy, that would be a revelatory word from God for his family, not fortune-telling. It's not what it is. Not predicting the future. That's not what prophecy is uh, in, in, in our understanding here. Again, we get a good clue from the, from the text. Chapter 14, verse 3 says, says this. Prophecy speaks to people or to God's family, and it gives three very specific uh, kind of parameters for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. Consolation means hope. So a prophetic word would be upbuilding. Now, upbuilding could be corrective. It could be calling us out. And very often, a prophetic word is calling God's family out. Or it could just be a word of encouragement, or it could be a word of hope. And then the ability to distinguish between the spirits. That would be a gift of discernment from the spirit so that a person can discern the source of words and works. In other words, people who, who, uh, well, let me say it this way. Words of prophecy need people in the family exercising discernment to say, no, that I really don't think that's a word from God, the Holy Spirit. That's from a spirit, but not God, the Holy Spirit, right? So it's the discernment for words and works as to their source or their origin. And then everybody's favorite, various kinds of tongues. Now, there are two kinds of tongues that we know of in the New Testament. There's one in Pentecost. Remember when the Holy Spirit came down and everybody was speaking in their own language and others present who couldn't speak that language or understand it were able to hear and understand and they would speak back in their own known language and others who were foreign to them could hear and understand. That's one kind, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. The kind that Paul is talking about here is a person speaking to God in an unlearned language. This is a spirit-inspired, um, unintelligible verbal utterance, whether done in public or in private. This is the kind of tongues that Paul is talking about here. Various kinds of tongues. So, And then follow on immediately the interpretation of tongues. That would be an on-the-spot articulation of a tongue into a known language, right? So very often when we hear tongues explained, it's like, man, it's an unintelligible language. And, and, I'll, and I'll hear it explained this way, like it's, it's an utterance that is, is, is attempting to see or describe or behold the indescribable beauty of God, right? So it's this unintelligible um, sense. But we'll see this in chapter 14. If that's going to happen, Paul says there's got to be somebody present who can interpret that and on the spot communicate to the family uh, what exactly is being said. So that's the list, list that Paul gives us there. Again, not exhaustive. And you know, I just want to say it's really sad that these gifts have become or had become a source of controversy for this family, right? These gifts were, they were given for the common good, right? But rather than contributing to the common good, they were creating or contributing to division. And I I want to say it's a really good thing that these are not a source of controversy for us today too, right? We laugh because we know that they are. We know that we, we have allowed them to become a source of division. They themselves are not divisive, 
God gave these gifts, did he not? Like even for those of you who are like, all these giftings make you feel really uncomfortable. What has the text said over and over and over and over again already? They're all from the Father, through the Spirit, every single one of these. We allow them to become divisive. Imagine if there was division in your family, and your father or grandfather was so grieved by the division that he wrote a letter trying to get to the heart of the division and explain how he had given these good gifts to the family for the common good, but we have taken these gifts and have divided over them and argue over them, and we're so grieved by that. Imagine that in generation one. That's Corinth. Now imagine 20 years later, 20 generations later, I'm sorry, the same family, not just arguing over the good gifts that the Father has given to us, but arguing over the letter that he wrote to explain the goodness of the gifts. That's what we do. We don't just divide over the gifts. We divide over the letter that our dad wrote to us to be, yo, family, get it together on these things. I gave these to you for the common good of the family. God forgive us for the division that we have been a part of or that we have allowed or that we perpetuate over the common, the good gifts that our father has given to us. Okay, we got to keep pressing. Part two, why are spiritual gifts given? Verse seven says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit. I know we've already read this, but we need to, we need to hammer this down. Why? For the common good. So let that sink in. The Holy Spirit personally works through me for the good of his family, not for my own good first, right? The gift that he's given to me, it's not for my good. It's for your good and your good and your good, not for me. Guys, your daily participation in the life of our church, if you're a part of our church family, or a church, you got to be part of a church family. Like that, yeah, we'll see that here in a minute. Your daily participation in the life of a church matters so, so much, and your daily dependence upon the Spirit matters just as much. So let's recap where we've been so far. The Father sends the Spirit to us, so the Spirit is our first gift, if you want to say it that way. He is God's first gift to us. And then the Spirit, His first gift to us, He points us to our Father and to the Son, Jesus, our rescuing King. And at that same time, the Holy Spirit gives us this gift of faith, which is expressed through allegiance and affection to and for Jesus. And then He begins a lifetime of us realizing and knowing his presence in, with, and through my thoughts, my deeds, and my words, and my love for the common good of the family. So it's a lifetime of receiving gifts from the Spirit for the good of his family. And the whole, here's what we need to see from this text. The Holy Spirit's presence will be expressed uniquely for every member of our family. It's not carbon copy. There is one Spirit, Paul says, there are diverse gifts from the Spirit, and and, and that leads to his personal resolution, and it's a point of strong emphasis for this per portion of Paul's letter, and this is where we'll finish up. Here's his personal resolution. I need the church, and the church needs me. See, this, this letter and these gifts, while they have been the source of so much division, God's design for this piece of the conversation for us is not that we would become increasingly divided or close our hands around our understanding of gifts and how they're expressed and when they're expressed. That's just pride and that's foolishness. It's arrogance. 
the Father's intent for us is that we would walk away from this letter feeling the weight of necessity of belonging to and participating in the life of his family for the common good. How sacred is it that the Holy Spirit for each one of you in here has personally and uniquely chosen to express himself in you and through you in an individual way for the good of others in here? Does that not just blow our minds a little bit? That's incredible. So that would mean then, if that's true, our, our participation in the life of a family is absolutely sacred and necessary and important, and that's where Paul's going to go. So not division, but unified around this idea of, holy cow, this is an incredible gift that we have been given. It matters that I participate. And that's Paul's thesis statement here in chapter or verse 12 and verse 13. Look at what he says. For the rest of the chapter, he's going to compare our physical bodies with Jesus' family. He says, as it is with our physical bodies, so it is with Jesus' family. So John Ransom has one physical body, and my physical body is comprised of many, many, many diverse members. So church, we are one family made up of many, many diverse members. In one spirit, Paul says, we are all baptized or placed into this family. He's not talking about our actual baptism. The bap, the ba, our water baptism is a symbol of this reality. But he's talking about a work that the Father does through the Spirit at our adoption to place us rescued rebels into the family. Baptized, whether Jews, Greeks, slave or free, right? Diverse. But now our life is found in this family. And that's what Paul says when he, made, when he says, all are made to drink of one spirit. All are made to drink. That right there is why I like to drag my baptisms out. And I wish I dragged them out longer. I apologize. Like, I wanted to hold you down under. So when I baptize somebody longer, I mean, I give myself a long count of three. three one 1,000, two 1,000, while the person submerged. Three 1,000. Not only to remember the baptism, but this is like, imagine, see these two words next to each other? Baptized and drinking. What does that imply to you? That you're under long enough that you need to open your mouth to breathe, but the new substance that you're breathing is different than what you were breathing as a rebel. You were drinking the oxygen of your own rebellion and self-will. Now as followers of Jesus, adopted and baptized into this family, when we breathe for the first time as children of God, now we are breathing in life from an entirely different source. The Holy Spirit is the source of our life, and we share that in common. So the Spirit gives me life by placing me in the family. And he, listen, the Spirit sustains our lives through participation in his family. The Spirit's work that gives us life is found inside the family, not outside the family. The Spirit's work that sustains our life is found inside participation in a church family. That's where he works. And Paul says, just as each member of a physical body must be connected in order to receive and to give and to live, every follower of Jesus, every son or daughter is either connected to the family or dying. There is not another way. That's what this entire chapter is saying. We are connected or dying. I need the church and the church needs me. 
It is essential, it is necessary, and it is non-negotiable. Now check these two mind-blowing ideas out that we encounter in the text. God arranges my place, and God arranges my purpose in the family, okay? So God arranges my place, and God arranges my purpose. In verses 14 to 20, Paul compares our physical bodies with Jesus' own body, his family, the church. Now, look, again, he's like, your body is not made up of one kind of member, but many hundreds, thousands, you're diverse, but every member of our physical bodies is an equal part of the body, right? The foot is an equal part, my hand, my eye, my ear, all equal parts of my body. And Paul says, if my old body was an eye, how would I hear? Or if my entire body was, a, was an ear, uh, how would I smell? There's a first prophetic word towards Rona right there. How would I smell? I said, I'm sorry, that was a lame attempt at a joke. I, <laughs> Paul's saying we are diverse by the Father's design for our good and for his glory. If we were all the same, there would be no body. There would just be a mass of cells, but no definition, no health, no function, no life. Now here, verse 18, you ready for your mind to be blown a little bit if you haven't seen this before? Look at what Paul says. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Guys, that's a statement of our physical body and this family right here. So God designed our body and placed the members where he wanted them as he chose. But Paul's making that same claim about the church. The Father is that intentional about your place and your purpose that he chooses for you. God arranges my place and he arranges my purpose. We need the church and the church needs us. Where you're like, well, how am I supposed to figure that out, John? That sounds like a riddle that only a super spiritual person could discern. Like, where in the world am I supposed to, like, how am I supposed to figure out where exactly God wants me to be? How am I supposed to figure out what exactly God wants me to do? You know what? Here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to. You know what God calls you to do? Participate robustly in the life of his family. You know who figures out the what or the where? He does. You know who figures out the what or the how? He does. You know what we're responsible for? Showing up and submitting to the Spirit. So just partner with the life of a church, any church. Go, show up, and be present and submit to the Spirit. He figures out the how, and he figures out the where and the what. It's not a riddle that we've got to solve. It's simple. We show up and we participate. The Holy Spirit takes responsibility for the rest. Verses 21 to 22, Paul is going to say, look, since this is true, no part of the body can look at another part of the body or the body itself and say, I don't need you. Just the opposite, actually. The very part of the church that you think you don't need, you need the most. The part of the body that seems to be weaker to you is, here's Paul's own word, indispensable. Guys, you are an indispensable part of this family. You are needed here. There's a a, a twin truth to that. This family is indispensable to your well-being. You need, and that word need, you can put any synonym in there, but you can't soften the word. You can't weaken the word. The father's looking you in the eye and saying, you need a family around you for your spiritual well-being. Non-negotiable. Any time that a Christian distances himself or herself from a church family would be like an actual appendage from my body trying to disconnect itself and walk away. How, that's what Paul's saying with this example. How absurd would it be this morning if you woke up and your foot got out of bed independently from your body and tried to move across the room without you? 
intent on going its own way apart from the body. Let me just ask you a question. If the foot disconnects from your body, is it still a foot? It's not a trick question. Yeah, okay, it's still a foot. Let me ask you another question. If the foot disconnects itself from your body and is still a foot, we'll give it that, is the foot able to function according to its purpose? Absolutely not, right? We laugh and it's absurd, but that's the point. Have you ever, could you ever imagine a foot, could a foot physically walk itself through, through any space? Could it walk? It is entirely dependent upon the body. And you could say that about every piece of your body, absolutely dependent upon the body itself for life, but not just for life, for function. You can't even be what God has created you to be apart from the family. That's what he's saying. Connected or dying. Can't live without it. Then Paul, in verses 23 to 26, he says, look, with our physical bodies, we cover up unpresentable parts, right? We wear clothes, We cover up our our unpresentable parts, but that's not the way it is in God's family. There's no hiding. There's no shame. There's no covering up. There's no secondary uh, places in the family, no division, no ranking. All members of the family receive the same level of honor. The person serving in the nursery this morning matters to this family just as much to the person standing behind the microphone. Full honor, equal honor. No one person serving or present is better than another. All members receive the same level of honor, care, and concern. And if one of us suffers, Paul says, we all suffer together. If one member is honored as a family, we throw a party and we celebrate together. And then Paul helps us recap in verses 27 to 31. He says, look, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has pointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. He's not ranking the gifts, although some would argue, did you notice in every list what's listed last or right right near the end? Did you see? Which one is it? Tongues. Why do you think that is? What was this church family overvaluing? He was putting it in his place, right? Not that it's less than or least or doesn't exist anymore. He's, he's, he's doing that intentionally for them. But this, this list is not meant to be a ranking. Rather, it's somewhat sequential in the birth of a, of a church or a church plant, right? An apostolic gifting and some, uh, prophetic, uh, some prophetic gifting and some teaching. And then, and then it just kind of builds sequentially from there into the full-bodied expression of a family. But here's, we don't want to get hung up there because here's Paul's point with these questions that he asks. Then he just turns to us as a family and he says, family, are all of you apostles? And what's the answer to that question? No. Are you all prophets? No. Okay. Do, are you all teachers? No. Do you all work miracles? Nope. Do all of you possess gifts of healing? No. But if one of you does, could we work on the Rona thing just a little bit, right? That'd be fantastic. Do all of you speak with tongues? No. Do all of you interpret tongues? No. Guys, that is the clearest way. In some of our circles, all of our circles actually, we use spiritual gifts as a test of spiritual maturity, right? And in fact, in some circles, we would say, if you don't express the Spirit's presence in a particular gift in this way, you're probably not even a Christian. What's Paul doing here as clearly as he can? Stop it, he's saying. Knock it off. God gives various gifts to different people, and no two people are gifted the same. Stop using them as a test 
of a person's legitimacy of their faith or their spirituality. We're all gifted differently. But then he says, and we'll unpack this more in the next two weeks, verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, I don't want to focus this morning on what are those higher gifts. We'll unpack that a little bit next week and and in the week to come. But the command remains. What's the command in that verse? Let's just take the word higher out for a moment. What are we commanded to do? What is it? Okay, with some confidence now, what is, what is the command here? Desire. Earnestly desire gifts from the Spirit. If what, has, if what has been said is true, guys, what a beautiful thing. We should pray daily, Holy Spirit, please work through me according to your will, whatever you want to do for the good of other people in your family and for your fame. Guys, we need the church and the church, I need the church and the church needs me. When you PCS, you need the church and the church needs me. Don't delay. There is no perfect church out there. There's not a magical place. It's not for you to have to discern the place, the how, the what, the when, and the where. We show up and we submit to the spirit. That's what we do. That's what we're responsible for. Don't, don't delay. Guys, we will become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, only when Believing the Spirit gives each of us gifts for the common good. I reorient my life so that I'm living like I believe I need the church and the church needs me. John's going to come now and lead us in a response to this passage. I'm sure if you're like me, you, you, you have something to confess uh, from what we've learned this morning. So John's going to help lead us there and then lead us to confess uh, as a family as well.